So we are going to have Andrew speak to us about time. The time has come. Totally great title. Uh, and then we're going to have Vanessa and Jonathan speak to us about comparative prospects for climate litigation. And then last but not least, Eric Knudsen's going to talk to us about insurance. The high, yeah, exactly. The popular topic right before lunch. Okay, great. Thank you so much, all of you. And uh, take it away, Andrew. Okay, thank, thank you, Sherry. Uh, yeah, so the only, the time has come. That's the only piece. So Sherry contacted me about this conference. And, um, and I said, well, I'm not sure what I would write about. And she said, oh, don't worry about it. I'm just putting in the funding right now. It doesn't matter. Uh, so I wrote this thing about time and wasn't really sure what I was writing. And then then you know, didn't hear from her, didn't hear from her. Then, oh, the conference is on and here's what everyone's writing about. It's like, ah, okay, now I have to write a paper about this. So the only part that's really kept is that first little bit. And then I've changed, it's still still about time, basically. Uh, and about some stuff that we've talked about a little bit about today, uh, over the past couple of days about, you know, why are we failing? Like, how do we think about the fact that we keep making these targets and missing them and making these, these policies and then not really following through on them? Um, and I was starting to think about what kind of institutions do we have or what, how do we think about our kind of legal institutions to help bring stability into climate policy and climate law um, and how we think about kind of optimal amounts of flexibility in policy, right? So when is there good flexibility? When is there bad flexibility? How do we think about building um, our institutions to deal with that? And I, but well, you know, flexibility brings some trade-offs with it too. With some other goals we have for climate policy, things like uh, political accountability or expertise, the use of expertise or the reliance on legality. And so I started to think about. I wanted to think about. Well, what kind of tools do we have to bring stability, and how does it implicate these trade-offs that we think about? You know, we want from our kind of administrative state. And then, what trade-offs do we actually make? So, what are the kind of in, the kind of theoretical trade-offs, and what? Um, what are we? What are we? What are we actually making in terms of the trade-offs? And so that, so the kind of time problem is. No, I won't belabor this, but the, the time problem is uh, obviously we have uh, this kind of long-term effect baked in from our greenhouse gas emissions, and in addition, we have to think about um, creating kind of long-term incentives for people to act. We have to kind of have a long-term plan for, for climate policy. And both of those raise sort of two big sets of questions. One of which, how do we make trade-offs over time? Like how do we think about future people? How do we think about the environment versus client effects on the environment now and versus the environment in the future? How do we make those trade-offs? And then secondly, how do we keep to those, those trade-offs we made or when do we change those trade-offs? And so my, my project here, I wrote the abstract as it was dealing with both, but that's way too big. So I'm just gonna deal with the second part of that, which is how to maintain um, stable policy. And so I started writing about, well, commitment and how do we focus on commitment? We need commitment to create incentives. We need commitment to, to get the kind of build the long-term kind of action. But then I started to think, well, not all of this is good, right? And we have to think about um, when we want to have uh, change that's good. So if there's new information that arises that we find out that things are worse than we thought or that are better than we thought, or we have technologies that we didn't know about, or Putin starts another war, like how do we think about how that impacts what our climate targets are, right? So we may need some, some good flexibility. We also may need flexibility in thinking about how we change over time. How, if we change what our how we view these trade-offs over time, because we have to think legitimately about kind of democracy and political ac accountability in that sense. The bad flexibility comes when we have to think about um, uh, changes that are that are that are connected to, in, in part, to uh, this time inconsistency problem. And I had this that, that kind of in economics it comes from monetary policy, but um, yesterday Sherry was talking about um, adaptation. So the kind of one kind of key example that 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 stems from adaptation is the government says we're not going to you know we're not going to give help at anybody who uh, builds on a floodplain. If a floodplain if a flood comes, you guys are on your own, right? Time two comes, flood comes, and the government can't hold to them, right? There's too much political pressure to to and 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 people know that. So now they're going to build on the floodplain because they know the government's going to back down on whatever that long-term commitment is. So that inability to make credible long-term commitment um, causes a whole bunch of problems. And the economists have a you know a bunch of different sort of solutions to it. On the monetary policy side, it's like get a bank uh, governor of the Bank of Canada that's independent, maybe make some long-term 
rules about how we do monetary policy to try and reduce discretion. Um, but these timing consistency problems are sort of endemic to climate change. So from adaptation, but also mitigation, you can think about recently our problems with keeping the, um, to a, you know, a solid carbon tax with the Trudeau government kind of creating these exemptions over time and people now saying, well, why do I, why am I going to invest in heat pumps or whatever, right? Because I know that there's not going to be a climate, um, uh, sorry, carbon price down the road. So we have this sort of uh, set of timing consistency problems that are tied to issues around things like public irrationality, perhaps, like public misunderstanding of what the problem is and, and, and um, uh, uh, changing a kind of fears about things that maybe aren't, aren't, they shouldn't have fears about, could come from regulatory capture as industry starts to push back. It could come from, though, a change in our trade-offs. And so we have to think about when is that kind of inconsistency valuable and when is it, when is it not? As I said, the, the way in which we deal with that flexibility, that kind of good versus back flexibility, can implicate a whole bunch of different things we care about. So that kind of key one is political accountability, right? The reason why we may make these kind of changes is in, in kind of time and consistency is because there's an accountability. And some of that accountability is good when it's kind of for as I say, for these kind of trade-offs or norms that we have, that we the kind of evolving norms that we might have, some of it's bad about a capture or or um, sort of responding to public uh, irrationalities. But it also implicates things like, well, how much do we rely on efficiency as a basis for our our regulatory policies? How much does do we think about the what, how do we think about the role of the courts? Like, what's the, the kind of role of legality in in maintaining stability? And then perhaps efficiency, at least in the cost sense, we have to think about efficiency, if not the kind of broader kind of cost benefit analysis, which I'll talk about in a second. So then I thought, okay, well, what are the, some of the key questions? And I just want to deal with a couple this morning because we've got 15 minutes. Just deal with a couple this morning and, and talk about the trade-offs and then I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. One of the big ones is, well, well let's just legislate a target, right? We heard about Heard about that from um, uh, from Josephine this morning that the EU has now legislated some targets. We have in Canada a form of legislative, weak form of legislative uh, target. The idea is, well, let's just tell everyone what the target is. We're going to hit that target, come hell or high water, and that's one way to bring stability into the into the system. Well, we know that that stability comes at a cost. One of the costs is potentially good account, good flexibility. Like, we, like it could limit our ability to, to, to take into account new information, to deal with, with norms changing in a positive way that, that, we want to, that we want to think about. It also ties into kind of accountability or political accountability writ large. So electoral accountability. And we have to think about you know, all sorts of debates about, well, what does that look like? Who, who wins and who loses in that kind of arena for political accountability? So it's not an unalloyed good, right? That kind of setting those targets and how we think about those targets is not an unalloyed good. It, it taps into a certain form of political accountability. It also, as we talked about, as from Rory's question for, for Josephine, is it ties into, well, how do we think about legality in this context? In Canada, it doesn't really tie into legality. It's not going to be, those targets are not likely to be justiciable. We're not going to be using some of the courts to kind of enforce those, maybe in the EUR, but we have to think about the kind of trade-offs across those issues. If we do delegate, there's a whole range of other issues we have to think about. So suppose we delegate and we say to the Environmental Protection Agency, you can deal with air pollutants and they have to think about, well, what does that mean in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, right? One way in which we can constrain the discretion and think about bringing stability into the law is to make them follow a certain process to make their rules. So in the US, there's cost benefit analysis. We have a weak form of that in Canada. Those types of rules on discretion have their own cost, right? It obviously will, at least for if we think about cost, but we'll just use cost benefit analysis as an example. It may increase the role of, of expertise, right? We have a bunch of people who can think about these issues and can bring science and, and kind of the best information into the, into, the, into the policy. It may enhance efficiency. It obviously decreases, no, it doesn't obviously, but it decreases political accountability, 
right? We have expertise. We have a technocratic solution to these problems. We're not building norms together, for example. We're not all coming together and thinking about this problem in a, in a, in a way. And, and actually, you know, there's arguments about cost-benefit analysis having a particularly pernicious aspect of this, which is that it relies on a notion of fixed preferences, this kind of idea that we have um, our views of the environment or our views of the environment. Let's think about what that means in terms of the costs and benefits. But if we don't think about transforming the way in which we view our relationship in the environment, that's kind of hidden, that's kind of lost. And I mean, Katrina talked a little bit about that in terms of the, in terms of the, the adaptation, but that's a kind of a, also a broader issue. How do we think about building our norms together? You can lose that through a norm, through a rule, uh, sorry, through a rule like uh, cost benefit analysis. So those are kind of some, some rules we can think about. We can think about the legislature makes some rules. We can think about rules about how you exercise the discretion. You can also think about, instead of making a rule, you give that discretion over to an independent decision maker. So the Bank of Canada in terms of monetary policy or some regulator that is not as influenced by the fact that um, there's public pressure around um, some, uh, uh, certain rising prices for, for, for heating oil in, in, this, in the same way in which, you know, just that comes from politics as opposed to, to some of the thinking of the kind of trade-offs in a, in a different way. At its best, that kind of independence may bring expertise, right? It may bring greater efficiency. That kind of reliance on expertise brings its own kind of constraints on the use of discretion. It clearly reduces political accountability, and that's the whole point of it, right? Good or bad, political accountability is reduced um, from this. The risk is, as we know as lawyers, is that if you give the, the decision to an independent body, you have the risk of arbitrary decisions, right? You don't have that kind of political accountability. And then we have to think about, well, um, can we bring legality in to constrain that independence? Okay. So the legality comes from um, administrative law. So, sorry, there's gonna be, for those who are phobic of administrative law, there's a brief period of administrative law here. Um, uh, <laughs> So, so if we think about it, and the, the way I kind of think about this, or at least the clearest example of this, and it ties into a, a current controversy in the US and in fact in Canada as well, is you can think about the level of deference as a way of, of having an independent body be a check on policy. So the judges are gonna review whatever the, the independent regulator, the decision the independent regulator makes, and they can defer or not defer to a certain degree. And you can think of the extremes, they always defer. Right? There's, they, they, they're worried about their legitimacy, they're worried about their expertise, they're always going to defer, right? And that just leaves us in the same spot as we were with independence. The opposite is the judge never defers, right? The judge makes the decision. And we see this in administrative law in certain contexts, right? Where the judge says, well, it's, in Canada, they say, oh, well, it's correctness. In the US, it's uh, kind of various issues around statutory interpretation where the judge makes that call. In that case, we bring, raise the kind of different concerns, which is the, those about kind of like, again, the legitimacy of the judge to make those calls as the judge relying on their, her own policy preferences. Do they have the legitimacy to, to, to make these, or the expertise to make these kind, of, these kind of calls? So the solution is generally thought to be, you know, some sort of middle ground, a sort of form of reasonableness. Right, that we, we want the, the independent decision maker to make a reasonable decision. Maybe we tack on a requirement of reasons there that makes them think about the decision itself. It ties into broader forms of deliberative democracy. That all has a nice kind of ring to it, um, but it is really problematic in, 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 in practice to think about how to set that line. And that line is right now under attack in, in, in certainly in the United States. and, and um, is least least questionable in, in in Canada. So in the United States, obviously, we had like the West Virginia case with the major questions doctrine. There's the decisions in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, or sorry, the U.S. Supreme Court about um, whether Chevron continues. So this notion of how strong a role the courts take, how much deference we give over to expertise, is a live issue, and it has a big impact on the stability. Can have a big impact on the stability of of climate policy. Um, over time, the nature of cli climate policy over time. In Canada, we've kind of come to a little bit of a better spot, or we thought we had perhaps with Vavilov and the requirements for reasonable reasons and reasonableness. 
there's been some decisions lately that have that have kind of raised some some issues around that, including kind of regulation of plastics, and we have to kind of think about how the kind of line that the judges takes um, judges take uh, fits in with that. But that's a really kind of important um, piece here. Uh, let me just throw one more on the table, and that is you can think about another form of rule here to, to control stability, and that is environmental rights. There's a constitutional norm constitutional right that is a constraint on policy, right? So it's bringing the courts in, this is hits hard on legality, raising of course all the questions about efficiency and expertise and political accountability that we, that we kind of raised before, including questions about like, how do, you, how do judges trade off rights? So if we're saying we want a right to a clean and stable uh, climate, how do we think about the trade-off of those rights with some things we were talking about earlier in the, uh, yesterday about um, kind of indigenous rights or rights of homeless people? How do we make those kind of trade-offs? And the question is, well, can judges make those? How do judges make those? Are they equipped to make those? How do we think about that? All those kind of trade-offs are going to be key to how we think about the stability of, uh, uh, of, of climate policy. So the question is, it, how do we think about finding that that optimal balance, right? It's, none of these kind of goals is going to, you can't maximize each of these goals, right? We're going to have to find some sort of, as Vermeule, uh, as Adrian Vermeule said about uh, kind of administrative state, you have to find some sort of rough optimization across these, these goals, depending on the, on the context. And so we have these kind of two sets of tools. We have, um, you can make a rule, you can legislate a rule, you can make a rule about process, you can make a, a rule through consti the constitution, or you can give the decision to some sort of independent decision maker, either a independent policymaker or perhaps the courts through judicial review. We don't do a great job of thinking this through kind of in, or haven't found, found that kind of a great mechanism for this. We re rely really heavily on political accountability we don't really use legislative targets, at least in, in Canada, the United States, to the to to kind of a a, a huge extent. We do use a cost-benefit analysis to to some extent, softened a little bit by kind of um, participation, um, but that has its own problems around kind of constraining transformative change. We don't, at least in Canada, really use independent policymakers. We have some independent policy advice, for example, at the federal level from um, the net zero climate advisory body, which can put out kind of advice to the government, but the government doesn't really have to follow it. Um, and this kind of question about judicial review. So we're struggling to find sort of an optimal balance. In fact, we've kind of leaned towards heavily on uh, just flexibility. So good flexibility, bad flexibility, whatever kind of flexibility you want, it's there. Um, and we haven't really kind of found this mix. One thing we don't do that I think, or don't focus on enough, which I think is really important, it's gonna be important going forward, is another form of rule. And that is um, norms, right? So what would be that kind of ultimate way in which we find stability in climate policy is we have some sort of greater relationship with the environment, thinking about our relationship with each other and in the environment, finding that norm can help find, make the trade-offs over time in a more consistent way. And building that kind of norm is, I think, one of the big challenges right now, one of the big challenges for environmental law. Thinking about how we use our law and legal institutions to build those kind of norms, I think is really um, central and, and kind of overlooked right now. Um, but that's it, that's the project. I'm just trying to think about how we, uh, how we kind of get around this problem of kind of constant failure. All right. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, thanks to Sherry for including me here and um, also to Sherry for um, finding an excellent uh, <laughs> co-author in Alyssa for me. Um, we had seen each other at civil procedure workshops over the years, but never actually had this opportunity. So thank you. Um, and it's been a pleasure working with you. Um, so we're, we're still at the beginning of working. Uh, and <laughs> what, uh, what we're going to be talking about is um, litigation approaches to um, climate change. And we're looking at the US and Canada for sort of contrasting experiences. And um, I, just at, at the outset, um, there are 
could be questions. I think some people do have questions about whether the courts are the best vehicle to address this. We'll sort of bracket that. We're just going to, at this point, look at what has happened. Um, and I think you'll see uh, our, our basic approach is going to organize itself that there's sort of driving factors here on both U.S. and Canada cost in terms of what the costs are of assembling litigation. Uh, and then forum choice becomes important, although different kinds of forum choice in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, U.S., it's federal state. Canada, it's provincial choice. Uh, but we'll we'll talk about that. So um, yeah, so we're going to focus on procedural choices and obstacles. Uh, in the U.S. context, this is uh, these cases have been brought very frequently uh, against uh, oil companies uh, as sort of creating climate uh, climate issues, uh, and um, they uh, well see in the uh, you can see in the United States we've had several such lawsuits that have been brought. Um, Many of these have already reached the appellate stage, so they've largely been brought, uh, well, they've been brought sometimes in state court, I can talk about that, uh, but then they've been removed to federal court or brought in federal court. One case has already reached the U.S. Supreme Court, but on a sort of a procedural, very procedural issue. Um, Canadian litigation is at a much earlier stage, so, um, and I think Melissa will talk about sort of the extent to which that's following in the footsteps of U.S. litigation in some ways as lessons may have been learned, but also the different um, forum, the, can, the Canadian courts present sort of a different uh, setting. So there's also sort of a metamorphosis, if you will, uh, we can talk about. So um, in the U.S., um, I, I, I think I, I'm going to talk about uh, this choice of forum a little bit, federal versus state, maybe a bit about personal jurisdiction, if you're all up for that. I'm not sure you are. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Sherry will talk about choice of forum, costs, and class actions. And then BC uh, also is a special, um, maybe a likely forum for, for these suits to go forward. So um, maybe I'll just uh, say in the United States, again, we've had uh, these lawsuits. Um, they've been sort of premised largely on this notion of nuisance, uh, and they've been brought. So most of the cases sort of, ha as I said, have been brought a, a lot of them by uh, governments, state governments, municipalities. Uh, they're alleging nuisance um, and they're brought mostly. There's one case that was brought in federal court. Most of them brought in state court. In the United States, we have two separate court systems right down to the trial level, federal and state. Uh, they're, or they're, they're organized, the, the, uh, unlike Canada, uh, in, in state courts are set up within each state however they want to. A lot of the judges are elected. If they're appointed, they can be appointed by the governor. Uh, so it, there's no federal intervention in the state courts. Um, and so federal versus state can become important. And a lot of the oil companies have tried to get these cases into federal court. And I will not go through the paper talks about uh, some of these strange arguments that the oil companies have made. In fact, Alyssa and I were talking you know, do we really have to talk about some of these? But they show up, and I guess because they have the same lawyers and the same briefs, but they really do make some strange arguments. But you, just to give you some sense of this, um, the, the, the cases sound a nuisance. So there are arguments that the Federal Clean Air Act preempts all state nuisance law and thereby converts what would otherwise be a state nuisance law claim into a federal claim. And once it's a federal claim, you can get into federal court. These arguments, to be clear, have been largely rejected, uh, but they've, they've really been working hard to get into federal court. And we can talk about reasons for that. Federal courts may be more business friendly. Um, maybe there's an opportunity also to get a national resolution, even if it's not favorable, I think businesses often prefer just to have sort of a, a definitive answer. Whereas if you're dealing with 50 different states, you can get different answers and uh, it can be sort of difficult. Um, so anyway, so, so, so there's been litigation about federal and state. I think most people think these cases eventually will have to go forward in state court. That's the way that it's sort of shaping up. Um, personal jurisdiction, I'll say something quick about this. Uh, is this idea that the court has to have, consistent with the U.S. Constitution, uh, the ability to exert power over the defendants. Um, and here, uh, you can sue a corporation, for example, in its home state, but very often you want to sue a whole bunch of oil companies. So you're thinking about where did the tort take place, and Alyssa, I think, will also speak a bit more about this. But in the U.S. context, there's a suggestion that the tort has to be directed at a particular at the particular jurisdiction in question. So if you wanted to sue in Louisiana, you have to ask whether 
the nuisance was directed at Louisiana. With global warming, you can make an argument that the tort is everywhere, right? Because you're causing sea level rise, and that's happening in Louisiana, it's happening in New Jersey, it's happening in California. Um, and I just, my sense is that that sounds great, but I'm not sure that the U.S. Supreme Court is going along with something that's going to give jurisdiction everywhere, since the U.S. Supreme Court has recently been quite reluctant to recognize jurisdiction that goes everywhere. Again, I'm happy to talk more about that in Q&A, and we can, we can speculate about that. So I think the point is the state courts um, seem to be the way to go, but that may sort of limit the ability to bring things um, uh, in, in one lawsuit uh, in, in a particular state. And the last point that will lead nicely into Alyssa is the class action idea is also very limited in the, especially in the state court context to get a national class action. So that's, uh, that's also why I think you have a lot of governments uh, bringing these suits. So I'll turn it over to Alyssa. All right, so we'll talk about uh, what the litigation landscape looks like in Canada. So again, I'm going to focus on nuisance suits, recognizing that there's a lot of litigation in Canada that doesn't sound a nuisance, right? There's been other strategies that people have my that people have gone to first. Um, but what would a would a nuisance suit look like? Um, we see now in BC, a group called Sue Big Oil that is trying to get together a class to bring this type of nuisance suit. And this is a trend that we see actually fairly often in Canadian litigation where, where there's a mass tort uh, theory that's developed in the United States. It then comes across the border. We saw that with tobacco and then with opioids. So this is in some ways following with that. But the landscape looks a little bit different, and I'm going to focus on um, forum selection and how that relates to cost control. And then I'll, I'll, if you want me to say a little bit about personal jurisdiction, I, I can, um, but otherwise we can leave that for the Q&A. So for the Americans in the room, forum choice looks different here. There is some federal court jurisdiction at the trial level, but it's much, much more limited. We don't have federal courts all around the country. There's also a tribunal system that becomes relevant for some of the other types of climate suits, like the advertising claims, right? So those could go, well, those have gone forward before the, the competition board. But what we're talking about with nuisance is a classic superior court jurisdiction in the various provinces. So, what happens when we're shopping for a forum in Canada? Well, you're shopping for cost control because in Canada, like most common law jurisdictions, except for those in the United States, the loser pays. So it's not just the danger of you uh, as a local municipality putting money into a novel tort theory that doesn't work out. It's also the danger that you're going to have to pay a portion of the defendant's costs and the oil companies use very expensive lawyers. Um, and so you're shopping for that and you're shopping for favorable procedure in terms of a form that's going to let you make this claim. And in Canada, that's a class action. Um, the class actions in Canada are quite similar to the sort of classic class action under the federal rules of civil procedure, except now, I'd, I'd say actually Canada, it's easier to bring a class action um, a lot of in a lot of ways in the Canadian province than it would be in the United States. And that I think is what has driven the choice of British Columbia. So um, British Columbia makes sense because of how it allows for aggregation and cost control. So BC's class action statute requires common issues, but common issues don't have to predominate. It's enough that there are common issues and that a class procedure is preferable over other types of procedures. So the preferability analysis, you can, you can get into a lot of fights there and you can get into a situation where essentially if common issues don't predominate, you're not gonna have a class that's preferable. But the statute explicitly says that common issues do not have to predominate, unlike Ontario, where now, um, after uh, recent legislation, they do. 
The big advantage um, of British Columbia, if you're going to try to bring a class action with a group of municipalities, is that the representative plaintiff is not going to be on the hook for costs as they would be, for example, in your other sort of big uh, litigation market, which is Ontario. And so that is why I think we're seeing uh, the attempt to do this in British Columbia. And I would expect if you have sort of novel climate tour theories that can be done with a group of plaintiffs, British Columbia is probably going to be your go-to destination for that. I'll, I'll just put a, a pin in and say there is also the option of a representative action in Quebec where you could have an organizational plaintiff um, bring some of these claims up when we're talking about uh, basically replicating the United States and getting local governments to sue. The BC class action um, makes a lot of sense. In terms of jurisdictions, uh, I'll, I'll just say tiny little bit. In some ways, it's going to be, you're going to have a bit of an easier time in Canada because where there's a physical presence of the Canadian subsidiary, you're at least going to be able to get jurisdiction over them. The question then is whether you get jurisdiction over the parent company. Um, and that then comes down to things like location of the tort. Um, but the stakes of this litigation are pretty high. And the reason why I think that the stakes of the litigation go beyond um, the U.S. states where it's happening or even beyond what's going, what may happen in B.C., we'll see if this class gets off the ground, and, and that's that common law jurisdictions copy each other, right? If we see this nuisance theory work, we're going to see it work in a lot more places. And particularly if you have a well-respected jurisdiction um, where the courts have accepted it, that's going to have a, a wider effect throughout the common law world. Conversely, if you have a well-known, well-respected jurisdiction where the courts have rejected it, um, like the English courts already have, have signaled in various ways, they're pretty skeptical about climate-related claims, then you're going to have a lot of a harder time bringing this case elsewhere. So one question beyond whether uh, a nuisance theory is a good way to go in terms of responding to and regulating climate change is also whether these are the jurisdictions where you want to bring that case or whether you want to go to a jurisdiction that might have sort of additional normative resources that might not be as available in the North American precedent. So we're just sort of talking, uh, New Zealand might be a, a potential, another common law jurisdiction with those normative resources. Question here, you know, are the courts going to be at all creative in, in how they think about property and harm. Hello, everybody. I well understand that I stand between us and lunch, and between us and lunch stands the law of insurance. <laughs> Let me just, uh, first of all, make sure that I thank my friend and colleague, Sherry, who, Sherry, you have wonderful friends you brought all of us together, many of us from different disciplines, I might add, and I echo Rory's point yesterday. Not a lot of places for people talking about insurance to come to, so this was wonderful. Um, and the fact that you made a really uh, welcoming and inclusive place is, uh, for those of us from diverse pieces in law is really great. So today I'm going to talk very briefly uh, about insurance and green liability uh, and hang on to this one, how liability insurers can propel climate change action. And I know some of you are going, yeah, right, in your minds. But go with me on this. So insurance and green liability, here's the plan. I'm going to talk about the problem, what green liability is, and why insurers may want to care. And then I want to move to chat about patterns that insurance companies and the insurance industry goes through with what I think they're going to do with green liability. And it's all good. There's no chicken little here. The sky is falling. The world's going to end. There's going to be no insurance. Ah, we're all in the ocean. Not going to happen. And then the third point I'm going to end up with is sort of uh, the hopeful one. That with green liability, maybe comes a little bit of insurance nudges. And they are just nudges uh, for climate action. 
So uh, what do we know? Well, of course, in the insurance sphere, surprisingly little. Not a lot of writing going on about this topic. And we've oddly enough heard that about from a lot of people that, gee, everything went really quiet after about 2008. Um, but the two main points that come out of past work on insurance and climate change have been this. The real problems are either catastrophic losses due to extreme weather events, i.e. property losses from wildfires, floods, droughts, you name it. And that's going to be the big problem, property losses. Or the issue facing the industry is going to be liability, but for climate change. Kind of like what we heard from Jonathan and Alyssa today that people are going to get sued for their roles in climate change. And that's going to be the big challenge for insurance law and the insurance industry. Well, I'm not so sure. I think the real risk might be something a little bit different, a lot more insidious. And I think it's here right now. And so I think the real risk for the insurance industry and insurance law and legal development is in what I might call green liability claims. And these are claims of liability, meaning behavior, fault-based behavior, that are going to come up from failing to plan for the effects of climate change, i.e. somebody didn't get their ducks in order when they knew darn well the train was coming. So this is liability that doesn't happen unless you have effects from climate change. And the risk to these claims is that sometimes we don't know that that's what they are. And I think that's the problem. They're insidious. Well, here's an example of what I'm sort of thinking of. Something like the failure of a government agency to plan for an extreme event, wildfire, flood, whatever. They don't have evacuation plans. They don't have plans for floodplains. They don't have plans to deal with the people and the losses and the tragedy and the mess and chaos that's going to happen. There can be liability there, right? You can pick a government agency or municipality and go, that was your fault. The, the event wasn't your fault. The fact that you had no plan was your fault. Example two, uh, you don't design a product to work for the climate we now know is coming down the pipes, right? Maybe you poured some cement and it's not quite going to work for the new normal, which is hotter and warmer and wilder swings to the weather. You can get all kinds of climate-related liability or green liability from places we often don't think of in the world of torts and fault. So products liability and construction deficiencies we might think of. You, know, you don't plan a, to build a road properly to take into account the effects of uh, weather. But it could be other things too. Liability for business interruption when infrastructure fails because of climate. We might lose utilities. We're going to have difficulty with transportation, rail, roads, planes, whatever, in extreme weather events. If product A doesn't get where it's supposed to be in time, someone's going to suffer, and someone might turn to a fault-based mechanism to recoup some of those costs. Professional liability claims. You don't effectively advise about the effects of climate change as an architect, engineer, accountant, lawyer, all kinds of things. Uh, same thing with directors and officers liability. If you're not effectively controlling for the risk of climate change as it appears for your shareholders or the valuation of your company, you could be subject to a claim for legal liability if suddenly the company takes a nosedive because they found they were dumping glowing green goo into Lake Ontario. Government liability we already talked about uh, at the municipal or higher up levels for all kinds of plannings for the effects of climate change that maybe they're not going to do. But the one that you often don't think of is also even personal injury. The wilder the weather, the more people get hurt. We have slips and falls and ice and snow. We have problems with heat. Uh, we have problems with drought, people getting ill. Um, you, you wouldn't often think that we're going to see spikes and in incidences and in claims for injury because of climate change, but we do, as with all those things behind me. Well, what does... Uh, the problem with an insidious nature of a green claim. Why does it sneak up and bite us? Well, first of all, people pay attention to climate change issues now. They care. They see it on the news. We're all here talking about it. 
So we're a little more attuned as potential litigants looking for fault-based reasons to pin some liability on somebody if you think about hmm, that happened because of climate change. You've also got an increase in incidents because, as we've heard already, some of these outfits are really big targets that are the biggest you know, resource industries. They've got money. They've got insurance. They've got pockets. There are some aspects of green liability claims that make them extra challenging. We heard from Lindsay today that they, you know, these things operate on a seasonal basis. You know, freeze up, thaws, uh, droughts in the summer, too much snow in the winter. They can be long latency claims if you've got long latency effects of some kind of pollutant that can take years. Not easy to litigate those. And there's real challenges about how you package these. We just heard from um, Alyssa and Jonathan about bringing nuisance claims, which is, I think, sort of the, the hot, new, sexy tort of the environmental world now. Um, but you could use negligence. It's just a different theory. We're in law trying to work out how, what are the best ways to bring these kinds of claims. That's tricky for an insurer to try and sort out what's coming down the pipes that they're going to have to pay for from a risk management perspective. The other real insidious risk for insurers is risks of insurance company bad faith in dealing with green liability claims. What do I mean by that? Well, if people are hyped up about climate change because they see it on the news all the time, and suddenly they have a claim that's somehow related to some liability for failing to plan for the effects of climate change, a kind of newsy bad thing, and their insurance company says, we're not paying for that loss. Well, if they're wrong, they can be opened up to all kinds of extra contractual damages for making that call in the wrong way. And that's the kind of a call that for PR purposes, a lot of entities are not going to want to have made on them. But I think the two biggest reasons why insurers need to care about green liability claims are also the biggest sleepers. One's defense costs. So whether or not you're successful in a lawsuit, it often doesn't matter for insurers. They're paying anyways, because part of the deal with liability insurance is, yes, you get indemnity if you're responsible for the tort you're sued for, but you also get a legal defense funded by your insurer. They have to pay for that. And we're not cheap, thank heavens, as lawyers. Um, so that's a real cost exposure for insurers. As we're trying out these novel nuisance claims or green liability claims, they may never succeed, but you got to pay for the lawyer along the way. And I think that's a really insidious cost that insurers need to start counting. They can get buried by that. The second one is what I might call the subrogation spin down effect. So insurers can subrogate their losses, meaning turn their losses and recoup their losses from the person at fault for causing them. So in a property context, if a fire destroys a house, the property insurer pays for the house. Property insurer can then sue an entity that they think is at fault, at least partially, for that fire. That then becomes a liability insurance issue for that at-fault party. So what happens is you're defraying the cost from the property losses for climate-related extreme weather events into the liability insurance market through subrogation. And I don't think people have quite taken into account the effect of that. So what's going to happen? Well, thankfully, we'll be fine. Past academics have said, oh, no, the world's going to end. Uh, nobody can afford these risks. We're all going to lose insurance. No, 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 it'll be fine. Don't worry, don't worry. Why? Because we have examples of past major stressors on the insurance industry and we know what goes on. So my little list of horrors up there that the insurance industry has dealt with over the past, from asbestos litigation in the 70s all the way to COVID-19 insurance and uh, issues and the war risk exclusion recently, if you take a look at those events, how the insurance industry has dealt with major stressors, and think about liability for green claims, claims for failing to um, do something to protect against the effects of climate change, you'll see that we are going to be fine because they follow the same pattern, I think. Here's the pattern. First thing that happens with the insurance industry when one of those stressors shows up, we've seen, and I think will happen with climate change, is you get moral panic. Good heavens, green liability. It's all going to go in the toilet. 
Nobody can afford this. Insurers don't have the reserves for this. We're done. We can't possibly pay for this incredible loss. It's affecting everybody. Well, guess what? On each of those, we paid for them. The sky didn't fall. You know, insurance is the fifth largest economy if we called it a country, right? There's a lot of money there, and then they're reinsured past that. So I think that's okay. But why do we know that they go through this? Well, in COVID-19, one of our recent examples, the first thing insurers did was they bought a number of PR firms to get out in front of the COVID-19 pandemic and say three things in the media. One, we don't cover pandemic-related losses. Two, all of our policies have exclusions for viruses. Three, we don't have enough money to pay for this. It'll bankroll us. None of it was true. But it was said. Uh, so after the, the moral panic idea, you had the same problem with asbestos litigation in the 70s. We can't deal with this. It's going to bankrupt us. It's fine. What usually happens is you then go to a market contraction. Coverage starts to disappear in two ways. One, you get a hard market for insurance. Nobody can buy it. Nobody can afford it. Or two, you start seeing exclusions creep in that are very wide, like the absolute pollution exclusion in the 70s, once you realized we shouldn't be throwing pop cans into the bush and stuff. Um, so this market contraction means there is a temporary, temporary removal of insurance. What happens after is insurers go, wait a minute, we're kind of cutting off the hand that feeds us. There's money to be made here in this risk. So let's start putting back some of the coverage we took away, but charge people a lot more for that little piece than we did before on an individual piece basis. So that's what happens. You get add-ons, riders, endorsements, putting back the specific risk that was taken away because of the moral panic and the market contraction. What happens after that is people start buying this stuff again. Gee, this is a classic example is water coverage, flood coverage. Insurers pulled out about 20 years ago in the, the flood and water market and started selling piecemeal coverage. So they separated flood with sewer backup with overland water protection. And you pay separately for each that you used to get as the package deal. But you paid a lot more for them individually, right? But over time, as more people buy it and insurers start realizing, this is a nice cash cow, the price starts diluting. And those little things start becoming cheaper and cheaper. So then everybody buys overland water protection, flood protection, and sewer backup protection, for example. You then move on to this idea that whatever that giant stressor was that was going to wreck the industry and destroy us all is now the greatest market opportunity of the century for insurers. People are scared. They're risk averse. What can we sell? And so you get packages like cyber loss insurance. Why wouldn't you want that? Aren't you worried about your ones and zeros getting into the wrong hands? So, so you get market innovation in the insurance industry that is booming. You repackage what you used to have included in the original package that you then piecemeal pulled out back in again as a new shiny thing. And you get marketing opportunities for it. You get brochures. You get mailings, you get Facebook feeds for it. It's great. So the market rebounds better than before. But then what happens is once you've got a diffuse market and people suddenly are used to buying cyber insurance, flood insurance, whatever it happens to be, they then start going, wait a minute. Um, we used to have this. Everybody buys it anyways as an automatic matter of fact. And lo and behold, it gets folded back into the original product it was in in the first place. So all of those stressors rolled the same way, right? Remember the Y2K insurance problem? I remember people were all worried that, it, you know, in January 1, 2000, we were all going to die because the computers couldn't handle it. My mother filled two bathtubs and 18 pots with water the night before, <laughs> just in case. But everything was fine. So the, the biggest profit... Uh, margin for insurers was that event, Y2K-specific insurance. Now, after that date, of course, the market dried up, but they did really well before then. So I think we're going to follow the same thing with green claims. We know that train is coming, but there's a market opportunity there in the end. It's going to follow the same pattern. 
So to that end, how do we have insurers, at least in small ways, nudge climate action if we know that's the pattern they're going to follow? Well, first, we know that as an industry, unlike government, insurers can actually be capable of collective action, right? Um, they don't have the political paralysis problem. And you know what the real weird thing is about insurers? They're indifferent as to actual cause of climate change. They don't care that it's human caused or not. They care about the incidence of claims. So they're not down in the weeds of what's the cause and, and that mess. It's just, what do we have to pay for? And we know that we can adjust behavior of insureds, you know, either because they're afraid of making a claim and so their premiums will go up, or that we're going to yank coverage from them. So what can they do? I've got a little list of small little nudges they can do, but I wonder if in a larger packaged way, it might make some difference. Why do I think that? Because we know that while people may not act if they see the government concerned about a thing, my goodness, if they have to pay more for their insurance or are at risk of losing their insurance, they may actually act because you can't run a business without commercial liability insurance. You can't have a home be mortgaged without property insurance. So maybe we've got some opportunities here. You could align the prices with the green risks. You could improve your liability modeling, of course, as an insurer. But I think some other ways might really help. If you tighten up exclusions or provide classic incentives to avoid green liability, i.e. avoid behavior that cranks up the risk that you're not doing anything about climate liability down the road, um, you might see some positive impact in behavior. So some ideas in past writings have been to sort of get people to adhere to green standards of construction. Uh, you get a discount or it's a requirement of coverage. Um, have inspections, hit safety standards as a requirement of coverage. Uh, you get, of course, experience rate based on the industry for what their green liability risks are. Why not? Uh, the safer you are, the less you pay. Another couple of options are to deal with the defense cost problem. Whatever your limits of liability insurance is, make that the limits that you pay for the litigation defense as well. Right now, that cost is usually unlimited. The limit of your insurance is the limit of your liability to a party, not the limit they're going to pay for your lawyers. Some insurers in the U.S. are starting to roll in defense costs of the ultimate limit so that people that are doing green liability risks might have to start to think, boy, if I have to start paying for lawyers to defend myself when I get sued, I might stop doing that. So those are a few ideas um, that might work. Uh, what do we know? I think these claims are here now. Green liability is already starting. I think it's going to be the climate problem, not big disasters in the property market and not liability for climate change. It's liability for failure to plan for the effects thereof. I think we're going to have problems on the defense cost issue and the offloading on the subrogation market from property insurance. But I think everything will be just fine. Insurers are going to do quite well um, at the end of the day. Thanks, everybody. Uh, that was fun.